Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. As college students around the country wrap up a tumultuous semester, debates about whether colleges should be in person or remote rage on. About a month ago, I hosted an AEI web event centered on that very issue. Our panelists included Christopher Marsicano of Davidson College, Bridget Burns, Executive Director of the University Innovation Alliance, Robert Kelchin, Professor at Seton Hall University, and Elwood Robinson, who's the Chancellor of Winston-Salem State University. In the first part of the web event, Dr. Marsicano presented data from the College Crisis Initiative at Davidson College, which has tracked college closures throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. If you're interested in that portion of the discussion, we'll include a link to the full event video in the show notes. I thought listeners to the report card would be more interested in the second part of the event, in which our panelists discussed the financial implications of the pandemic for colleges, the different approaches colleges have used to test students, and how colleges might use this time as an opportunity to bring about innovation in higher ed. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Chris, thank you for that presentation. Uh, and I'll invite our other panelists to go ahead and turn on their, their microphones so they can join us here. Chancellor Robinson, I'd like to kick it off with you first. Your campus at Winston-Salem State is one of those that is open in the middle of the pandemic. And I just want to ask, uh, why did you decide to bring students back to campus? And how has it gone so far this semester? I appreciate the question, Matt, and thanks for inviting me to be a part of this uh, panel. Uh, let me say, you, you, you said about Winston-Salem State University, we're, we're HBCU, over 100 HBCUs in this country. And for, for context, these were institutions that were founded prior to 1964 for the express purpose of serving African-Americans because we were denied access to higher education because of severe discriminatory practices. So I wanted to provide context uh, for the work uh, that we do. Uh, and, and what I'll say is that for us at, at Western Salem State University, it was important. We are on a trajectory. We started about 10 years ago, a, a, a singular focus for student success. We looked at some of the best models in this country. Uh, shout out to Georgia State uh, for leading the way in some of these initiatives. Uh, but when we started down this pathway, we, we have achieved over the past you know, seven to eight years unparalleled student success. You know, that includes graduation rates, academic efficiencies. Uh, I'm talking about uh, time to graduation, looking at high impact practices and exposing our students to what they need to be successful. And we did this uh, full employment. 70% of our students are, are fully employed six months after graduation. And we did that by designing a robust on-campus experience uh, where our students were part of a living learning environment and so that was important. So that's one reason why we open. The second reason why we open is because in my 36 years in higher education, I've never been any through anything this difficult. But at the same time, I've never been through anything that I'm, I have so much pride uh, because of the spirit, uh, because of the soul, the work that we've done for the past six months with a singular uh, uh, approach to this. And that is to make sure that we can bring students back on campus in, in a safe environment. That means having discussions with healthcare professionals. That means having discussions with faculty, staff, administration, the community in which Winston-Salem State resides, the healthcare system, which we uh, provide. So for six months, we worked tirelessly to be able to make this happen. 
And we learn a lot through that six months process with our ability to be nimble enough to be able to pivot. You know, if we bring students back, you know, we can certainly pivot. We were ready to do that. We spent the summer preparing to make sure that our classes had academic integrity to be able to teach online. And so we work hard to do that, to bring them back to a safe environment. The second thing, some of this we've learned through the past couple of months when students have been on campus, but we know in higher education, many of the students that we serve, first generation, first generation students, students who come from under-resourced communities and families, and they come to this institution to be able to get those kinds of resources to be able to help them navigate the higher education landscape. And so there's a lot of inequities on campuses in general when students get there. Now think about taking those students away from campus, sending them back to those communities, sending them back to those households where they have limited resources, particularly the kinds of resources they need to be able to learn online. So now you have a, another problem that you created in terms of being able to help them learn uh, going forward. Um, and so those are just a couple of the reasons why there are many more, but for, for the sake of time, uh, I'm going to pause and we'll come back later. Thank you for laying that out for us. Robert, I wanted to, uh, to ask you, you've written from uh, early on in the pandemic about this question and early in the summer, you were pretty clear that you thought reopening was not, uh, not a great idea. But there's been a lot of uncertainty, you know, introduced with the pandemic, and a lot has changed over the summer. So if you could, would you lay out in the broad strokes the logic of your arguments and thinking about reopening? And then also tell us, has the experiences over this semester that you've watched and had changed your perspective on that or reinforced it? Sure. So in in general, it's not a binary reopening, yes or no. It's how much are you reopening and for whom? And that's a really important distinction to make. It seems like most colleges that are bringing everyone back to campus, unless they're a small, well-connected institution or have lots of money for testing, that's where a lot of the struggles have been. But for colleges that are bringing back the students who need it the most, students who can't succeed elsewhere, whether it's because they need the safety of a campus environment, or they need certain courses that can't be offered well online or even in a hybrid manner. Those are the students who need to be on campus. And what we've seen is we've seen colleges limit the density and have succeeded that way. Sometimes it's intentionally limiting the density. In other cases, it's students deciding this really isn't the experience I want and I can be okay elsewhere. And that's a good thing to have because it saves space for the students who really need to be on campus. And now we're about two thirds of the way through the on-campus fall at many institutions with the goal of sending students back home or ending on-campus classes around Thanksgiving. And so far, some colleges have had incredible successes. Others have been touch or go for a while at the start of the semester and pulled through. Some campuses, the Michigan States and North Carolinas had spectacular failures that got lots of attention. And then there will be some colleges that decide to send students home early in November as cases start to rise in much of the country. So there is no one answer to this, but the goal as Chris's research suggests is trying to limit campus density to the students who need it the most and building that sense of community that Winston-Salem, Davidson and many of the smaller institutions around the country have done, 
or do the Illinois model, brute force test everyone and almost will the virus into submission. Thanks, Robert. Bridget, when, when our audience is thinking about this question, I, I would guess the short-term concerns about transmission and infection and the strategies to mitigate that leap to mind, and for good reasons, but that's really only part of the calculus here. Uh, I, I'm wondering what other considerations weigh in on this decision about whether you can bring students back to campus for institutional leaders' decision-making. I mean, on a good day pre-COVID, there isn't really an easy decision if you're talking about leading a campus. There's just so much complexity. And I just, I don't think that people understand the incredible nuance in each of these conversations. And we're not talking about a monolith. There's 4,000 different types of, you know, this is all very specific to the institution. So I think first, there are many campuses who didn't have a decision. There, I have campuses who their state or their governing board mandated they you were going to be open. And so it was really a question of how you're going to do it safely. And I also have campuses who that was simply a decision at the state level that you were not going to be open in, in person. And so the, the assumption that somehow it's it's just black or white and, uh, and, and that you get to make that call, that's not true necessarily. I think that universities have a lot to balance. Like they're responsible for advancing discovery and research that might come up with the vaccine. And students are actually involved in a lot of the research that's happening. So you know, foregoing that. And there's all kinds of complexity. Like we don't even get to like having livestock on campus. And just like, if you don't have folks coming to campus, there's a lot more going on than people realize. We don't just educate students. I would say that other, the other thing that uh, to underscore what Chancellor Robinson shared, you know, there are a lot of low income students who, if you were to send them home, they are not safe at home. They are less safe at home. If you're an LGBT student who has come out and you're not welcome at home, if we close down the campus, that is not an increase in safety for, for you. We have students who are struggling with hunger and homelessness that if you were to close down the campus, that actually leads them being less safe. And that's one of the many calculations that these leaders have to make. You know, I personally, I, I was a low income student from Montana. If you had told me that my institution was shutting down, like I didn't have a place to go. Uh, so this assumption is very much, you know, I think that some of the conversation has been very narrow and assuming this like 18 to 22 year old from a certain background. And that's just not the reality of the students that we're serving. I also think that people need to recognize that universities didn't create COVID, right? But yet we're dealing with the financial downstream effects in a very significant way. Many campuses were bracing for a $400 million, $200 million cut. It just depends on the institution. And for everyone, what, what really would be good is that the degrees they offer actually still have value. And so they're going to have to figure out how you run an institution when you have long-term contracts, you have union contracts, you have all kinds of things going on that you just simply don't have that flexibility. And the contracts for the residence halls, those were already paid. Many of those that you're not going to get, the, the university is not getting any money back. And so they're having to figure out how to balance the books so that they can actually still live to provide the value that they do to the community post-COVID. I think the other part is, you know, we're dealing with the reality that student mental health, depression, anxiety, suicide, those numbers are going up. And the assumption that somehow being remote would somehow be better and is safer for students, we're finding not necessarily the case. So I think, um, you know, what making the right decision for the health and safety of our students, I think, it, and our institutions is a fairly complex conversation. It's one that we would always want smart, capable leaders, having as much information as possible, less artificial pressure, 
to you know push on them to make a decision prematurely that was something that drove me nuts early on in the spring when i kept hearing people you know shoving a microphone in the face of every leader saying are you going to open or not i mean come on we saw people being idiots outside and the the idea that you would make university leaders make a decision several months in advance prematurely when we knew that was going to affect whether students showed up or not in the fall and it was going to affect the enrollment competition I mean, that was fairly reckless in my opinion. I think you just want smart leaders running these institutions to have the ability to make the decision for, the, for their students and their campus and, and to have less judgment about it, I would say. So Chris, let me let me get down to some basics here and I want everybody to, to, to jump in on this, but Chris, you and your uh, 30 plucky undergraduates have been uh, looking at a lot of schools and I'm wondering about mitigation strategies you talked about the Ferrero model, which is sort of a, a cocktail or a suite of things. But I'm also wondering, you know, not if there's a secret sauce or a silver bullet, but, you know, if you got a silver bullet, I'd love to hear about it. And also the, the question about sort of testing, right? Super expensive. It's a major headache and, and might not be even accessible in some schools. So where where is the landscape of testing as a mitigation strategy sort of feasible and, and infeasible at scale? I think it's really, really important to understand that the vast majority of institutions are not testing at the level we would like to see them testing. Very, very few institutions, I think the last time I checked, um, about 150 or so are testing students once a week or, or more. Um, the, the benefit of that testing is as we know how this virus sort of grows and spreads, there's, there's a reason why there's a 14-day quarantine. It's because the vast majority of people who contract the disease will show symptoms or, or will you know, be able to be spreading it within 14 days. So if you test everyone weekly, you're cutting that time in half. What you're basically doing is identifying people before they can start spreading the disease widely. So testing is extraordinarily important in terms of a strategy to make sure that institutions are able to stay open, that, that students are able to stay safe, and most importantly, that students aren't going off campus into their community and getting those who are more likely to be vulnerable sick. Having said that, there are many institutions that cannot afford the $100 per test amount. So what do you do in those situations? Well, the first is you can try to innovate. I, I gave an example of Illinois and of Hope College taking two different approaches, the University of Illinois, developing their own saliva test, going after it, trying to get everybody tested all the time. Hope College and others going for wastewater testing. So that's the, sort of the first model you can take. The second is you can go for sort of a cheaper, less reliable test. And as long as you're providing those, those tests sort of multiple times in the week, as opposed to once a week, you may be able to save money, but still be able to identify the people who, who are likely to be sick and likely to be spreaders. I, I think a, another key component here about testing is that we expect the price of tests to go down. Uh, a number of companies have already been in touch with us at the College Crisis Initiative, Ginkgo Bioworks and others, who will have tests that are available at, at a much lower price here, they expect in January and February. So institutions should absolutely seek out these, these biotech companies who are trying to get tests and get them to be at a lower rate, in spite of the fact that it's a regulated market. But I will say, there are a lot of schools that are not testing as much as we would like them to be, that are doing very, very well. I bring up HBCUs and liberal arts colleges all the time because those institutions have built into their ethos a sense of community. If there is a silver bullet in this, it is buy-in from students, faculty, and staff to wear masks, to socially distance, to take care of each other. 
It's places like Winston-Salem State. It's places like Winston-Salem State's one of their rivals, North Carolina A&T, that have built this, this ethos, even though you have a large uh, a, a group of students on campus, as opposed to the smaller schools, build this ethos of we take care of each other, we protect our family, or in, in uh, Chancellor Robinson's case, our family, uh, to, to, to make sure that we can, can uh, tackle the future here. So Matt, as far as my long-winded answer is, is concerned, the best approach is to build that sense of community. If you can build that sense of community, if everyone takes the precautions seriously, you can keep case counts down, you can keep community spread down. One of the things I'll say, uh, and I think Chris did a great job with that in terms of testing. Oftentimes when we look at testing and testing is extremely important, but I also think that people are paying too much attention to testing and not enough attention to what Bridget was talking about. And that is the collateral damage that we see as a result of COVID. I mean, there are so many things that are happening in higher ed in terms of the way we teach and way we learn that I think is an injustice to students. Back in March, when we emptied out our campuses and we sent students home and we put courses online, many institutions like Winston-Salem State, the courses were online, but we weren't teaching online. And so we weren't giving students what they needed in order to be successful. And now we see in, in, in many of the issues related to isolation, many of the issues related to being fearful about what's happening with COVID-19 are so much a part of our campus today, part of our faculty, our students, administrators, as we walk the halls and as we come on campus. These kinds of things have to be addressed. So one of the things that we did during the summer is to make sure that we had some, some academic integrity and making sure that our courses had met quality standards to be able to integrate that. So we're much better prepared now that we have students. Not everybody is face-to-face. Is -face. But what I will say, what we've learned through this process, one of the safest places, and that's because of the work that we did on the planet right now, is, is a college classroom. Is a, is a classroom on the campus of Winston-Salem State University is probably one of the safest places around because people pay attention, people wear masks, people do what they're supposed to do in those spaces. And so I would say that we need, also need to change the focus and attention towards some of this collateral damage that, that's happened because of this uh, COVID-19 as well. I would just wanna add one piece, which one of my campuses has well over 50,000 students. They have six positive cases right now amongst students. There are 800 students on that campus who will drop out in the next two weeks if there is not another CARES investment because they simply, families have lost jobs, they, their, their resources have been decimated and they know that there are that many students who they are trying to find any money after, under a mattress possible. And you know, folks were supposed to spend their CARES money early and so now they just don't have the resources. So some, we can't just be focused on one thing when this is also about the long-term economic competitiveness of our country and our, better, our ability to recover in general as a society. And one final testing issue that really played out in July and August was just the delay it took to get test results back. And that's something that a number of colleges cited in their decisions to be mainly online in the fall. If that can get better, that can potentially allow colleges to spend less money on testing with more frequent results and potentially get more colleges with more classes back in person. I, I wanna jump on uh, Dr. Burns's point here. It's, it's not just a CARES Act funding to institutions, a, a second round that's needed. It is money to the states. We are about to be in a fiscal crisis in most states. Money to the states, support to the states, is in fact support to higher education with so many public institutions relying on state appropriations. Although I, I would I would lean on, on Dr. Kelchin, the higher ed finance expert to, to tell me whether or not I'm right about that. But my sense is that without a substantial investment, 
both at the institution level and at the state level, we may see a number of institutions really struggling not just to test their students, not just to stay open for a semester, but to be able to be open at all in the future. Well, let me ask you uh, about that. And Robert, I'll put you on the spot initially. How big is this burden looking to be? And to ask about the interplay with having students on campus. I mean, if you don't have students on campus, if you're a tuition dependent institution, I'm guessing that's going to play differently than if you have uh, more reliance on state funding. Do I have that right? To some extent, public colleges are faring a little bit better at the moment because state funding is a backstop, but that backstop is going to take a major hit. And after tuition dollars recover, state funding will probably take years to recover after that. So it's going to be difficult for public colleges for years to come but that pain may be spread out a little bit more than for the, the private, fully tuition-dependent colleges. And when those budget cuts come, what does that look like? I mean, Chancellor Robinson, is that personnel? Is it programs? Is it supports? Well, for higher education, I mean, most of our budget, about 90% of our budget is personnel. And so when you start talking about cutting the budget, it's, it's cutting, cutting folks. And so we have, to, we have to remember that going forward. It is. You know, how do you keep people working? How do you keep people employed? And, and so that's, that's so very important. We had a, a webinar on, on K-12 asking, should students be back on campus? And one of the things that uh, everyone agreed on on the webinar was that remote instruction was better than it was in the emergency learning period in the spring, but it, it wasn't even close to in-person instruction. A big question in here is if students aren't returning to campus, what's the quality of the instruction that they're getting remotely? Do we have a sense of what the delta is between in-person instruction and and what we can offer remotely? I think there's a difference between offering courses remotely and offering courses remotely well, right? And and, And the latter takes a ton of investment. Credit goes to the Cal State system, which made the decision early not to be in person and funneled all the funding that a lot of institutions would have used on face masks and and tests to providing their faculty and others with a high quality sort of training or upskilling in online education. I I think it depends on on the institution and and the the sort of institutional setting, the institutional goals. There are some institutions that are going to provide an excellent online education. There are others that are much more suited to an in-person education. A lot of universities who, who online has just been an afterthought, and this is all like yep. it's Zoom you essentially. But there are many institutions like University of Central Florida, now Purdue with their acquisition, uh, Arizona State, there are a variety of others who actually have been very well set up for right now. And so students, you might see migration between campuses because students know that institution has the scaffolding for the academic student supports in a virtual context that simply others just haven't had the time to be able to build. Yeah, and, and for us, that was a lesson learned. And so now we're putting a great deal of resources into WSSU online. We understand the importance of that. And you're right on with that. Uh, many institutions weren't in that space. I mean, we're currently not in that space to the extent that we need to be. That's why we spent the summer with course designers working with over 200 faculty, decided to work with us over the summer to develop courses where if we had to go online and we, we, we've done so and, and we were ready for that. So, yes. I want to remind our, our listeners uh, that if you have questions for uh, our panel, uh, the hashtag is AEI COVID and college, and, and you could send those in. I have one here from Heather. Um, Heather asks, how are universities addressing what they need to do to bring staff back 
in order to safely deliver in-person instruction. How big is, uh, of a burden is that to provide a safe environment for faculty? It's incredibly important. So one of, uh, I, I don't know if I, it's public knowledge, so I'll, again, I'll be anonymous, but again, well over 70,000 student institution does not have a single transmission of COVID from students to faculty. They have staff, They have, I think they had like nine cases of staff and they had all come from their own family members, not from campus. So those are smart decisions that campuses are making to protect everyone. Uh, and they're seeing the results of those, but I don't think that because there seems to be somewhat of a arms race of you know, I guess it's accountability arms race. I don't know, but people like the obsession with numbers it makes it so that folks are probably not talking about that as much as they could, but this is a huge priority. They, of course, the liability and responsibility of that for the institutions long-term is massive. They, of course, don't want to be responsible for any of the negative consequences of the person catching COVID by coming to work. Uh, but at the same time, they have to balance out, again, all the multitude of factors that that person still wants to have a job. I've, I've got another question here. And it sort of has to do with locus of control. Chris, with your study that said uh, across the nation, 3,000 cases a day were added when in-person learning, any in-person learning was happening. Then the question becomes, should the decision about uh, reopening in-person just be an institutional decision? Or is this something that local governments uh, may need to weigh in on? An institution cannot open successfully without having a strong positive relationship with their county or state board of health. I mean, I think one of the great lessons of, of UNC Chapel Hill's quick opening and then quick transition to online was that there seemed to have been a not particularly great relationship between that health board and the institution. So who makes the final call? That's a question for somebody who is who is way above my pay grade. Uh, but, I, but I will say, I think we have some evidence of states and state governments pushing pretty heavily to do one thing or another across their state systems. And so already this, some of these decisions are taking out of the hands of institutional leaders and put in the hands of, of governmental leaders or put in the hands of sort of people at that, at that state level. I'm not sure that that was a better decision-making process. I think um, I, I agree with Dr. Burns. Let the leaders who have, who have, you know, who have brought in, to, especially in our public institutions, who've brought in to shepherd these institutions, let them make those decisions. They're going to have the most up-to-date information about what's happening on their campuses. And if they have a good relationship with public health professionals in their county and in their area, they're going to have up-to-date information in the local area as well. But I should also mention as institutions began to choose whether or not to be in person for the spring and in subsequent semesters, it's really important not just to look at the COVID cases on the ground in their own county, but also where they draw students from. I think that's a big part of the Anderson et al. paper that I'm a part of, which shows that it was students coming from areas with high COVID incidences into areas of low COVID incidences that brought the disease with them. So it's really important as institutions reopen to look not just in their own backyard, but across the country as well as to where their students are coming from and what the situation is on the ground for those students. And I think, I think that there's, there's certainly a lot of data that's coming in that has to be analyzed and making those decisions. And they come from so many different areas, you know, public health, you talk about looking at your legislators and your government, board of governors, board of trustees, everybody has is weighing in on some of these initiatives. And at the end of the day, you have to make the, the, the best decision you think for your campus. And, and that's, and that's hard and that's difficult to weigh in. I mean, during the summer, you know, you're meeting seemingly every day, uh, watching the data, getting as much information as you can. And I remember going in almost daily saying, are we going to be able to do this? Are we going to be able to do this? 
and you know, did not get additional information that would suggest that we might be able to do that. But paying attention to every single thing and paying attention not only to the data, hard data, but to the emotional data. I mean, that's sometimes difficult to kind of assess and to evaluate. How are you feeling? How's your administration feeling? How's your faculty feeling? How are they feeling about this? And are they having input into those decision-making processes as well? Everybody should be a part of that because at the end of the day, if they're not, they're gonna come back to you and say, you did this and I didn't have anything to do with this and it's your fault. I have another question here and I, I don't want to generalize from from my experience the undergraduate community but when i was an undergraduate i did stupid things so uh th that may be a, a precursor to this question they're asking should college students who do not take necessary precautions be penalized for not recognizing that with great opportunities come great responsibility can we trust college students to behave responsibly enough uh and of course we've all we've all seen sort of these news reports and they, you know it's inflammatory but how hard is it to manage uh, student behavior in a pandemic? I mean, that was always the initial question that presidents were struggling with is, you know, how do we do this? We can set out all, we can have all the best science, all the best minds, get everyone on the same page, have contracts and commitments. But in the end of the day, um, this was always going to be the challenge. And there are many institutions who have found really smart ways to engage students and make them part of this, the decision making. Therefore, they actually help hold each other accountable. I don't know if you've seen many of the viral TikToks where students are actually calling each other out. I mean, that seems to be, you know, public shaming might be working, but there are definitely always going to be examples of where it doesn't. So I think, you know, unfortunately, to go back to Robert's uh, point, uh, it does depend. It definitely does depend. It does depend. And also, you got to have the leadership in place to set an example. I mean, if you want folks to wear masks and you want folks to social distance and you want folks to do all these things, they, I can't be caught up without wearing a mask if I'm telling students to wear masks all the time. So, but that's that's really the hard work. But I, I will say that students are resilient as we have seen and as, as Chris was talking about and students are smart and students are aware and, and they will make the necessary changes if you give them opportunity, give them the opportunity, but don't do it from a punitive standpoint I do some, sometimes want to resist the notion of, of you know, making this into something where the police has to be involved. You know, I'm going to you know, arrest you if you don't have on a mask. Uh, I don't think that's the way you treat adults. Going into the fall, I, I thought that most students would do the right thing. And I think that's borne out nicely. The challenge with this virus is in many areas of the country, there is so little margin for error with student behavior and even doing the right thing isn't always enough. And that's why I've seen some colleges do really well and other colleges not do so well. I was just gonna say, I, I, I would feel so much safer if I lived on a college campus because where I live, I'm walking around and I'm like, I'm more, way more worried walking around on the streets of Portland right now in terms of people wearing their masks and social distancing and otherwise. Whereas when I've been on a campus, I've been like so impressed by the reverence to the rules. So. Yeah, to that to that point, I I uh, was on I was walking across campus a, a few weeks ago, and um, I saw a couple uh, from the community walk onto the campus without wearing masks. And right as I was going over to say, "Hey, uh, at Davidson's campus, we require everyone to wear masks," I saw two students run across the quad to ask them to put a mask on. Uh, and so I, you know, students really, they, they do not want to be in their parents' basement playing Xbox. Like they want to be on campus. And so they will do everything they can. And, and, and that's just the traditional students. For our non-traditional students, our adult students, our working moms, our veterans, students who don't have that same traditional pathway, 
it is get this done and have the masks or it's nothing. And so you have, a, you know, broadly across the country, across all swaths of students, people who are committed to making this work. So as we look towards the spring, a lot of campuses are, you know, shuttering campus after Thanksgiving and May open sort of later in, in February timeframe to sort of see what happens. I'm curious, what are the big indicators that might inform the decision of should we have students back on campus in the spring? So I think by and large, what we're seeing broadly is that institutions that were successful in the fall are planning, are using that same playbook for the spring. We're also seeing institutions that were online in the fall, learning from the institutions that did well and some that didn't do so well and implementing sort of best practices for the spring. So I, I think if we're seeing any trends one way or the other, it's to in-person education. I will say though, I wanna, I wanna sound the alarm bell a little bit. We did a random sample of 50 institutions yesterday. Uh, we had our team go and look at them to see what institutions were doing as far as planning for Thanksgiving. What happens after Thanksgiving when so many institutions uh, are, are gonna send their students home? Is there a pre-testing available? We found one institution out of those 50, one that had a specific pre-Thanksgiving plan for how, how to send students home. So that's something we're watching. That's something we're really worried about. Institutions should come up with, you can't just release everybody out. You got to come up with a plan. Uh, and, and those institutions that have done well, that have had low case counts, that plan can be send everybody home. But those institutions that are struggling to keep this, this virus at bay really need to, maybe you pay for testing for those two weeks before you send everyone home if you haven't been before. If you're part of the 30% of institutions that have no testing plan, maybe that now is the time to test before you send students home after Thanksgiving. I'm curious, is it just a money issue for the testing? I mean, if you have enough money, can you get the, the testing rolled out for those two weeks to test every kid? Or is it a bigger lift than just writing a check? I think that's the most important part of it. I mean, is is really the, having the resources to be able. To, if you got the resources, you can test uh, a lot. So that is certainly on the books. One of the things I will say before we before we close, I mean, as as we think about the kind of the lessons learned, one of the things I do worry about is having having to manage this and spend so much time managing it. I don't feel like I've been in a position to be able to innovate and kind of think about what what I want to do next. Uh, because what I'm learning a lot is that, you know, it, it, the students aren't, aren't happy. They aren't as happy. I mean, they are miserable. I mean, they'd like to be more engaged. And, and I just wish they had opportunities to begin to think about how do I do more engagement in the spring? That's the work that I think that we'll be doing over the, over the break to try to get to that space. And I would just add, I actually have seen more innovation as a result of COVID happen uh, than I have in, in the prior decade in higher education. And we're going to see the downstream effects of this. So you have a contact tracing program that you've built. Great. Uh, eventually, that's going to turn into an analytics system that's actually going to serve you on student success in a way that you can't imagine right now. The ways that we have figured out how to flip the classroom, things that don't act, that never really needed to be in person. Um, I think we're going to find ways to be so much better in, down the road. But I would also add, we just have to also wrap our heads around the fact that this is not going away. Right. This is here to stay. And so the faster institutions leverage the wisdom of other institutions and figuring out the best practices to enable safe and secure ways for people to continue to pursue their education, uh, the, the best chance we have to get back on track in terms of our economy and being able to keep folks you know, moving forward. And colleges' decisions for the spring are going to be heavily informed by what's the state of the world about January 1st? What does the virus look like? Is there a vaccine on the horizon? And 
it, it, do colleges have the ability to isolate or quarantine a large number of students potentially as they start welcoming people back? Well, I only have two more pages of questions, so we'll just be here for a little bit longer. I'm afraid we're out of time, but I want to thank all of you for joining us today. It's a great conversation, and we will look forward to what happens in the spring. And Chris, thank you again for your work. Keep it up so we can keep track of uh, all the good work of higher ed institutions during a crazy year. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, and special thanks to all the participants in this panel discussion. Christopher Marsicano, Bridget Burns, Robert Kelchin, and Elwood Robinson. Again, you can find the link to the full event video in today's show notes. I want to thank our producers that make this podcast possible. That's Matt Rice and Olivia Leslie. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And when you're there, take a minute to leave us a review. It helps other folks find the show. As always, you can send your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Matt Mountain.